So, um, last week we were in Ephesians 1, and we were thinking about how we can see and <laughs> believe in God's power. And today as we move into chapter 2, our subject heading is no longer dead. And I think I, I said last week that I actually see the two subjects as being very um, closely linked because we can see God's power in the changed lives of those who come to Christ, <coughs> those who receive new life in him, those who are, in the words of our subject today, no longer dead. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember uh, that we were thinking about how God's power is displayed in things which are very obvious and very impressive. Uh, we were thinking about his power in creation, and we were also thinking about how he also sustains, by the power of his word, everything, everything that he has made. That's the great verse from Hebrews 1 and 3. And we were uh, thinking in our reading from last week how he also dis displayed his power uh, has displayed his power in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how after Jesus returned to heaven he exalted him to the position that is over everything. He is the one who has all power and authority over everything. And then I, I finished um, with the point um, that I just mentioned about God's power being <coughs> displayed in people's lives. As it says in the passage that we're going to read today, we are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. But the problem with that, and the reason why I didn't want to focus on it last week, is that we probably don't feel that we are very good examples of God's uh, power. But what I'd like to do today is encourage us to recognise that what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in my life is a work of his power and therefore that gives us another opportunity to see it and and to believe in it so i'd like to finish off um before we get into chapter two i'd like to finish off what i started to say uh, last week and, and hopefully that will give us an introduction to uh, to what we to, to what we then go on to, to think about so if you don't mind i'd like to just reread uh, just a few of the verses from last week's passage starting at Ephesians 1, verse 15. <clears throat> it says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us. Now you might remember I gave a few, I said there were a few clues in that as to what I was going to talk about this week. Where is God's power in that passage? That short passage, where can we see the evidence of God's work? I think the first thing is in verse 15 where Paul says that he's heard about their faith. As I said before, one of the greatest evidences for the fact of the resurrection 
is the changed lives of those first disciples, believers. People who initially hid themselves away in fear when the Lord Jesus was taken and crucified. And then suddenly, for no apparent reason to the authorities, these fearful people were suddenly filled with courage and a determination to um, risk their lives, give their lives, dedicate their lives to following the Lord Jesus. And Paul's talking about the same thing here. The Ephesians were living out what they believed in. It was faith in action. Now you might remember when we were uh, studying the book of James uh, not so long ago, we were thinking about the need for faith to be accompanied by good works. Not as a means of earning God's forgiveness in any way, but because good works are the evidence of, of genuine faith. Otherwise, as James says, our, our faith is a dead faith. But the Ephesians didn't have a dead faith. They had a, they had a, living, a living faith. And we actually find a reference to it also in Revelation chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole passage um, there. But if you read what uh, the Lord Jesus says about the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he says that he, he knew their deeds, he knew their works, he knew how they'd endured, he knew their perseverance. Jesus knew it. They had a reputation for good works. And I, uh, although they weren't perfect, and Revelation 2 talks about things that weren't right, but they had a reputation for good works. And, and I guess that that's how it came to Paul's notice. Someone told him about what was going on in Ephesus. Someone told him about how Jesus was changing lives in the church in Ephesus. So, think about the things that you do. We don't like to do this because we don't, know there's a risk of pride, but think about the things that you do and why you do them. Your obedience to God's words, your loyalty to the church community, um, your desire to reach out to others. No, it's not always easy but your desire to reach out to other people and share with them what you believe in. Your appetite for reading God's words. The time you spend in prayer. Think about what you might be doing otherwise if you didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, if you weren't trying to, to follow him. Because what I, I'm suggesting that what we can see in ourselves and in each other, even though we're far from perfect, is evidence of God's ongoing work in our lives, evidence of his power. Now the next point is similar, and it's also in verse 15. Paul said that he'd also heard about their love for all God's people. Now that wouldn't be so special if they just loved their close friends, because, because we all do that, don't we? We love our friends, even when they're being rude and obnoxious. <laughs> No, I haven't got any friends who are in that category at all. And I wasn't looking at you, Anne. She's going, oh, she's looking at me. You know what I mean. You know, we love our friends even when they wind us up sometimes. So that wouldn't be so special. But remember, churches are places that bring together all sorts of different people from different backgrounds, people that we wouldn't always naturally associate with. People who don't always share all of our interests. Recipe for disaster? Yes, sometimes, you know, there has, you know, there is and there always will be um, some conflict uh, between Christians because none of us are immune 
to the effects of sin in our own lives. But believers who are intent on following the Lord Jesus and following his way will do more than just get on with their fellow church members. And I think that's evident here in the church in Manchester, and I know it's evident in many other churches that I've had the, the, uh, the, uh, the pleasure, the privilege of spending time with. We see more than people just getting on. We see a, a genuine, the genuine evidence of real love um, between people. And the, the Apostle John um, says that that is one of the evidences of God's love in our hearts. And also, as we, we read, the Ephesians didn't just love each other. It just wasn't the love just within their own church. They had a love, it says, for all God's people. Uh, and likewise, I think it's, it's just great to see how the love in our church and in all the other churches of God throughout the fellowship and the love between those sister churches um, is a love which really does make the fellowship that we belong to one community. And it's one of the very special things about the, um, the fellowship, one of the many special things. There is, a, there is a love for all of God's people. So we've thought about um, their works. We've thought about their love for all God's people. The third thing um, is in verse 16. And Paul says that he's not stopped giving thanks for them. So he had a personal joy, something which was tangible that he felt about their faithfulness and their, and, and their fruitfulness. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think it's true that the love seen in this church and the love seen throughout the churches of God in the fellowship and in the wider Christian uh, community, I think it shows where people's treasure is. It shows the things that they care about, the things which are, are important to us, the things that we love. And like I said, where does, that, where does that love come from? It comes from hearts which are being transformed by the love of God. I mentioned the Apostle John a moment ago. Let me just read a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 3. It says, John says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And we're not suggesting that was what was happening in, in Ephesus, quite the opposite. He says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. This is how we know. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. That's the third thing. And then the fourth point, and final point, from I guess, from um, chapter 1 that I wanted to make, is that in verse 17, Paul says that he kept asking. He kept praying for them. So he had a burden. And he cared about them. And it's like what I said about before about 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 love but there is a separate point here it's what he wanted for them because of that love his burden wasn't for their 
their, their physical health and their financial prosperity, or at least that's not the, that wasn't the priority, that's not what comes, comes out of the passage. His burden, his desire was for their spiritual growth. That's what he, he wanted for them. He wanted them to know the Lord better. He wanted them to know the blessings in the hope to which they'd been called. He, he, he wanted them to, to know that, to experience it. That was his desire. And when we want that for ourselves, and when we want it for our friends and families, and when we want it for complete strangers even, to know God better, then I suggest that is evidence of God's love and God's desire in our hearts. We're wanting the same things that God wants. It shows that God is working in hearts that otherwise wouldn't give a monkeys about, about all of that. So these are all things where we can see God's power transforming our hearts and our actions and making us more like Jesus. And as I said, we are far from perfect, but, um, and I don't think therefore that this is always the best evidence of God's power, but nevertheless, together with all the other evidence, the more obvious things that we've been talking about last week, I think it does help us to see and believe in God's power all the more. So then, Chapter 2. More of the same? Well, as I said, I, I think that there is a continuation of the theme in that we see in chapter 2 further evidence of the transforming power of God. But it seems that Paul suddenly decides to take a step back and reflect on what they were before this transforming work um, had started. Uh, and I, I guess one of the reasons is that it, it kind of illustrates all the more how actually impressive God's work in their lives uh, was when you compare them with what they were before. And I'm sure that each of us have our own personal story, um, what we were or what we imagine we would have been um, if we hadn't come to know the Lord Jesus. But there's something else in this passage we're going to read, something which is absolutely fundamental to our faith. So we'll come on to that in a moment, but first of all, let's read the passage. So it's Ephesians chapter 2 and from verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for it's by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do so that's our our passage for, um, for today, our main passage. <coughs> so we've been thinking about the incremental 
improvements that God is making in our lives as part of his work in progress. But we just read about a transformation which is not a work in progress. It's a completed work, something that can never be undone. Verse 1 said, you were dead. Verse 5, but God has made you alive. You were dead, but God has made you alive. Sure, we probably all know the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, if anyone is in Christ, and by the way, that's, that, we don't have time to say loads about that, what that means, that little expression, but it's a very important expression we find in the New Testament, and it's, it's, you find it all over the place. And it's really great that whenever you see anything said in relation to that term in Christ, you can put those things together and build a very solid understanding of what it means to be in Christ and how we get to be in Christ in the first place. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And in chapter 1, that we, we, we read that, that expression in chapter 1 as well. And we were told that we were included in Christ when we heard and believe the gospel. So you see what I mean? You can put the two things together there. We know, therefore, that when we heard and believed the gospel, what Second Corinthians 5 says came true, that the old was gone and the new has come. We became a new creation. And we also learned that at that moment, the believer receives the Holy Spirit and he is given to us as a deposit to guarantee the things to come. See why we can feel so confident in the hope to which we've been called. These things are guaranteed and not dependent on us. It's something that God has done which can't be undone. We are each new creations. So this transformation from, from death to life, and clearly it's speaking about something different to our biological um, lives you know the the, the the guys in Ephesus hadn't actually died at some point and been brought back to life he's, he's talking about their spiritual lives he's talking about their souls and this transformation from death to life is is a permanent thing it's a done deal but what is the message of truth the message of truth that Paul refers to this gospel of their salvation that the that the whole world is invited to believe in now, you all know the answer to that question. But, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It really does pay to remind ourselves of it again and again and again. Because this is truly the most wonderful thing that anyone has ever been invited to believe in. Let's pick up a few key points about it that we get from the passage that we've read today. The third thing is that without Christ we are dead. We are spiritually dead and the root cause of that is sin isn't it in verses two to three paul lists some characteristics some behaviors which are associated with that condition and he called it following the ways of the world i used to get fed up hearing that term when i was a kid you know the ways of the world and everything it was like this kind of yeah but i but i like my school friends and i like you know i like watching telly a bit and stuff you know it's, it's everything outlawed but 
what does Paul mean by following the ways of the world? He's, he's, he's talking about accepting its standards, accepting its cultural norms, joining in with its rejection of God either directly or, or indirectly, specifically or implied. The world rejects God and his ways. And it also includes, it says, a selfishness of heart which really doesn't care that very much about the consequences of all that. And then it goes on to say that because of our sinful nature, we were deserving of death. Deserving of God's wrath. So what does that mean? The deserving bit. What we've done against God has a consequence. God is righteous, holy, just, God has absolute integrity. These are great qualities. These are not the problem. We're the problem. These are great qualities about God that we can celebrate and give praise for, but because of those things, God could never turn a blind eye against sin. He could never ignore man's rebellion. And so there had to be consequences. And as you know, Romans 6 and 23 says the consequences, the wages of sin is death, but then the verse goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's where, in my view, the good news of the gospel begins. You know the term gospel means good news. Probably one of the most understated interpretations of scripture in the world. You know, good news is something they used to refer to on Top Gear every week. Good news, some rubbish car has just come out. You know, the good news of the gospel is really good news in its most extreme form isn't it? And that's where it starts. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 4 tells us about God's motive. It says that because of his great love for us. Now that's one of the mysteries of the gospel. Actually we never get our heads round. Why? Why would the almighty, holy, righteous God love sinful human beings? We don't know but we, we know it's true. We know it's true because of, because of what it says and we know it's true because of what God did about it. Because of his great love for us, God did what he did. And what was that? David, I hope you don't mind if I just dip in for one verse into your passage from the passage that you'll be looking at next week. But in verse 13 of chapter 2 it says, But now in Christ Jesus, that term again, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Christ shed his blood, as we've been thinking about in the remembrance this morning. He suffered the wrath that we deserved. He hung on the cross, paid the price for our sins. Paid the price for the redemption that we were thinking about a couple of weeks when Steve was looking at chapter 1. In verse 7 it says... In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have redemption through his blood. Christ paid the price. And he paid it in full. You know, it's not like one of these car dealerships that gives a, a contribution to the purchase of something. He paid it in full. There's nothing else that we need to... To, to do to top it up, not even 5%, not even 1%. Christ paid the price in full. We don't have to earn our salvation in any way. And that's why I think Paul stresses 
that salvation is by grace alone and not by, and not by works. As it says in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. Not by works, and no one can, can boast. It's not by works, just by believing. Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. So I hope you don't mind me just repeating what, I'm, what I know I've said many times before. But I just think it's, it's just ever so important that when we say believe, when the scriptures talk about believing, I remember someone saying, uh, uh, when, when I was a kid, I, I remember just being fascinated by this. And it's absolutely true what was said, I'm not knocking it, that believing is the easiest thing in the world. It takes less effort, physical effort, than blinking of the eye, which doesn't take an awful lot of effort uh, at all. But when we talk about believing, when the scriptures talk about believing, it's not just believing that Jesus died. Well, history tells us that. And it's not even believing that Jesus is the Son of God and was raised from the dead. Because the scriptures say even the demons believe that. It involves a recognition. A recognition that we are sinners and needed, need God's forgiveness. There's got to be that recognition there. And with that comes a degree of repentance for what we are recognising. It must include that recognition. And it should include a determination. A determination, a commitment to God that we're going to turn away from the things that offend him and try our best to live a life in obedience to his commands following the Lord Jesus. That's my definition of a Christian. And as you see, this is all part of the transformation that God wants to make in our lives. First, he transforms us spiritually from death to life. And then he transforms us behaviorally. And he never does it the other way around. Spiritual life and then liveliness in our spiritual experience. And verse 10 tells us that to help us with that... God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Works that not only will bear fruit, usefulness in our service for the Lord, but will also help us along the way in our, in our transformation. Now I'm going to explore this a little bit further next week when we have our um, discussion meeting. So I'll, I will circulate some um, suggested um, discussion points, uh, but I'd like to just get into this a little bit further. But just for today, the key point that I'd like to leave everyone with is... This truth from God's word that in a single moment of genuine faith, a person can be transformed from spiritual death to life eternal. But that's only the start. If we're prepared to live by faith, if we're prepared to follow our Lord Jesus in the way that he, he wants us to, that he's called us to, then we can look forward to being part of that ongoing transformation, that work in progress that God wants to work in our lives and that's what the apostle paul was so thrilled about when he heard about what was going on in ephesus and actually that's what the apostle paul could see in his own life his own transformation despite his own personal struggle with, with sin that he is very open about in, in in the scriptures in the letters that he wrote despite his own struggle as we all do he could see in his life that ongoing work in progress transformation 
And that's what we can see, I suggest, in all our lives if we're prepared to just consider what God is doing, is doing with us. So, as I said last week, I think all of this is further evidence of God's, God's power, God's work. His work and his power in the early church and his work and his power in the churches today. So we'll leave it there and we'll just have a closing prayer.